Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. The coming Christian persecution, why things are getting worse, and how to prepare for what is to come. That's the title on a new book by Dr. Thomas D. Williams, and he's my guest coming up. It, things are very bad right now. Um, world experts say that there's more Christian persecution in the world right now than there ever has been, including back in Roman times. And every indicator is that things are getting worse and not better. In other words, that the drivers of Christian persecution are getting stronger and stronger, and the traditional outposts, the traditional strongholds and defense mechanisms for Christianity are getting weaker and weaker. I hope you're all real well. There's so much going on swirling about. I almost could do an extended episode, but I will focus on a fascinating and a thought-provoking interview we've coming up with Dr. Thomas D. Williams on his latest book, The Coming Christian Persecution, Why Things Are Getting Worse, and how to prepare for what is to come. It's published by Sophia Institute Press, and it's really riveting stuff. Any kind of persecution is terrible. It's unacceptable, whether it's against people of no faith, people of any faith. It's completely, utterly unacceptable. Dr. Thomas Williams will explain to us some of the horrendous stuff that's going on out there. A recent report shows that Christian persecution is rising globally and religious freedom is at major risk throughout the Middle East, Asia, Africa and even in the West. Christian communities are being targeted for their beliefs whether through violence or public policy and it's a trend that continues to escalate and is on our doorstep. I'll ask Thomas Williams to explain all of that and we'll get into some of the content of his really worthwhile book worth reading. Um, speaking of persecution I noticed a, a new survey out on anti-semitism on the rise to record levels of anti-semitism in parts of the United States and that's certainly unacceptable and we've spoken about that on this podcast in the past we all live under the one roof we have to have a set of good values and that's something we can get into at some other point and before we get to my interview with Dr. Thomas Williams, it's time for our weekly segment of Future Shock 2.0 with our great friend, the irrepressible Ira Wolf, who is a workforce trends expert, a TEDx speaker, and host of the ever popular Geek Skeezers and Googleization podcast. And here he picks up on something he spoke about recently on this show on chat GPT. But he has some updates. He's going to reprise what he's already told us with some new exciting turns. And some will leave you maybe pausing to wonder what's ahead. Here's Ira Wolf. Ira Wolf, chat GPT. So new, but it'll soon become mainstream. We're all catching up with it. What's new in it? John, thanks. I, I love this topic. The future seems to have met the present, or as I wrote in my book about Googleization, science fiction meet reality. Um, Dig Life Deep listeners um, probably have heard about ChatGPT, and they may not know what it is, so we're going to define that and, and some of how it's affecting us. Um, 
the reality is sort of like Star Wars just met the Twilight Zone. <laughs> so let's start with the basics. What is ChatGPT? What it's what GPT stands for is you know the technical term is generative pre-trained transformer. That's generative pre-trained transformer. And just as I'm having trouble saying it, uh, it's actually pretty complicated. So I, I pulled this description off the internet. To put it quite simply, ChatGPT is AI or artificial intelligence. It's a language machine. It uses statistics, learning, supervised learning to index words, phrases, and sentences, which doesn't really tell us what it is. Um, but in fact, and this this is across all lines, I, I know we hear about intelligence and artificial intelligence. Um, ChatGPT really isn't very intelligent. I mean, it is intelligent, but it has no real intelligence in, in the sense of who we are. For example, it doesn't know what the word means that it pulls out. It just knows how to use it. So it, it would be like, you know, I, I grew up, um, I, I, I could read Hebrew, but I have no idea what you said. You know, I can read French, but I have no idea what the words mean. Um, so, you know, part of it is, is that's, that, that's where, where that fits. Um, but it's really, really good at at summarizing, answering questions, writing articles, because um, people may be familiar with IBM Watson, you know, a number of years ago. And they use it in medicine because uh, Watson can read 8,000 journal articles in seconds, where if you think about a physician trying to keep up with what the latest is, no possible way to do that. But now they can get the digest. In that, so think about GPT in that way. But I, I wondered about how do we explain ChatGPT um, to a kid? You know, so I asked it, um, and it gave a pretty good answer. Um, so here's what it said about uh, how I can explain this to my grandchildren. Imagine if you could ask your toys or stuffed animals anything, and they would reply back to you. <laughs> Chat GPT is a way to have conversations with computers, just like you have with your friends. Imagine asking Chat GPT lots of questions, such as "Tell me a story about," or "What should we do today?" So you might recall, as we were kids, um, it's like "I'm bored," and you didn't want to say that too often to your parents <laughs> because they'd yeah. give you that look and chase you off into the other room and say, "Find something to do," and you go, well, "What am I going to? What am I going to do?" Well, now kids can ask GPT to tell me a story, play a game with me. Um, it, it's it, the, some of the things that it does are pretty incredible. Now, there's probably a, a really dark side to that. But when I ran this, it gave some really interesting and good answers. So I put some of these questions in. Why won't anybody play with me? Why am I bored? You know, tell me a fantasy story. And it created this fantasy story. It goes, well, what do you want to talk about? And I said, well, I... I just made something up. Uh, it actually created a puzzle for me and it played a few guessing games. So here's some of the applications of this. Think of this as the new babysitter, as, as a teacher, as a mentor. Now, my mother's 99 and she's, but up until just two or three years ago, she was using the computer. She was emailing. She was searching. She was pretty good at that. She's and, and I'm sure she tunes into Geek Skeezers and Googleization. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, she absolutely did. And I'm sure she loved Odeon Capital and did like um, but think about that for caregiving, you know, for, for people who are lonely. Now, there's the dark side of that, that obviously if they become attached to their, to their computer and chat GPT. Uh, but there's so many things. So, you know, where, where does this all fit? And, and again, I know people are blowing it off, and this is just another trap. 
But you and I have been through enough trends and things. The latest was social media less than 20 years ago. And But I remember when the internet and, and the PC first came out. And, you know, so 40 years ago, we heard that off, you know, when we went online, we heard that awful crackling sound of the computer trying to connect to something called the internet. People said, oh, be careful. It's so dangerous out there. Um, and then all of a sudden, uh, Mosaic, people may not even remember that name, and, and Netscape came along, uh, and then AOL, and made it easier to use. And soon as it became easier to use, the internet be di didn't become so foreign. It became mainstream. And ChatGPT, and when we talk about artificial intelligence today, it's foreign. People don't understand what it is. It's scary. It's terrifying. Um, but we, you know, back 40 years ago, we heard all about the threats and dangers of the internet. Some were true, but it didn't stop it. Toothpaste was out of the tube. <laughs> Uh, and then something like browsers came and opened up a whole new world of possibilities. So uh, we're at that point. We're at that tipping point now. Um, I whether chat GPT in, in in its form will be around five years from 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Uh, we don't know. But it, it gave us a glimpse into what artificial intelligence and machine learning can do to the everyday person. And it gave access to it. And it's already disrupting jobs. I mean, there are people that are, I, I know many, many companies have said, we had two research assistants, one left. We're not replacing them. We're now utilizing chat GBT to help write some of the content to market, to do some of the research. The, the implications are enormous. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, many people are saying this is only the first chapter. We're in the forward. Ira Wolf, thank you. And that was Ira Wolf. He'll be back next week for more in his weekly Future Shock 2.0 segment. And of course, as I mentioned, Ira is host with Jason Cochran of the top-rated Geek Skeezers and Googleization podcast. Speaking of which, the team of the Odeon Capital Conversations podcast on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein and yours truly will be doing a live seminar this coming Thursday, April the 6th at 2pm titled Navigating Never Normal, Digging Deep into SVB, Recession Jobs and AI with Odeon Capital Conversations and it's hosted by the Geeks, Geezers and Googleization team of Ira Wolf and Jason Cochran and you will not want to miss this. Watch the live stream on YouTube, LinkedIn and Facebook, a must watch event with the team from Odeon Capital Conversations. Dick Beauvais, he's the Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group, and Matt Van Alstein, Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner, and yours truly. Dick and Matt team up with me each week on the Odeon Capital Conversations podcast up there on Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeart, Radio, and more. And we've been following what's going on in the banking industry following the collapse of SVB, Silicon Valley Bank and other banks and leading the discussions here with 
impeccable and thought-provoking research is, of course, Dick Beauvais of Odeon Capital Group, and you won't want to miss any episode of that. In a moment, we're going to have my interview with Dr. Thomas Williams. He is out with his latest book, The Coming Christian Persecution, Why Things Are Getting Worse and How to Prepare for What is to Come. Dr. Williams is the Brebart Rome Bureau Chief in Italy. His latest book is a hard-hitting and timely tome that masterfully reveals the state of affairs in countries that systematically persecute Christians. Again, it's called The Coming Christian Persecution, which was just released. And as well as his writing his many books to his credit, He uh, was a 2018 Visiting Research Fellow for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. He teaches theology at St. John's University Rome campus and has done extensive media work, including serving as consultant and commentator on faith, ethics and religion for NBC, CBS and Sky News in the UK. In addition, Dr. Williams was appointed by the Holy See as spokesman for the Synod of Bishops in 1997 and again in 2001. And by the way, Williams' other books include Who is My Neighbour, Personalism and the Foundation of Human Rights and the World as It Could Be, Catholic Social Thought for a New Generation. Wow. Uh, he is just brilliant. You're going to really want to listen to my interview with Dr. Williams coming up. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is Dr. Thomas Williams. He's the Brebart Rome Bureau Chief who has penned a hard-hitting and timely new book that masterfully reveals the state of affairs in countries that systematically persecute Christians. It's called The Coming Christian Persecution. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Dr. Williams, welcome to my show. Thank you very much, John. It is a pleasure. Big fan of yours. And it's always nice to be able to talk about important things with important people. Oh, thank you. You're flattering me already. (laughs) This is going to be an easy interview for you. (laughs) The Coming Christian Persecution is the title on your new book. It's out in March. So we're getting Mm -hmm. an early look at this and we can talk about it. Um, And the subtitle, Why Things Are Getting Worse and How to Prepare for what is to come. How worse could they get? I mean, there's been various reports from reputable agencies about the scale of Christian persecution um, across the globe in 2020, according to the World Watch list published by Open Doors, 340 million Christians were facing high levels of persecution. 
Walk us through it. How worse is it going to get? I hope this doesn't come to pass. It's a dreadful thought. Well, I understand this is a very, it's, it's a bleak title, but it's an honest title. That's not meant to be sensationalistic. This is really the state we're in. It, things are very bad right now. Um, world experts say that this is, there's more Christian persecution in the world right now than there ever has been, including back in Roman times. And every indicator is that things are getting worse and not better. In other words, that the drivers of Christian persecution are getting stronger and stronger, and the traditional outposts, the traditional strongholds and defense mechanisms for Christianity are getting weaker and weaker. So it's a situation where things will get worse before they get better. And I think that it's important for Christians in particular, but the world in general, to prepare for that, to recognize it, and to be aware of what's coming. Take us through the scale and the depth of the persecution we're seeing in the West and across the globe today. Well, this is another thing. This is a very important point you're bringing up, John, that, that the West and the rest of the globe, because there are really two types of persecution, traditionally red persecution, which is the persecution by blood, where Christians are killed, where Christians are imprisoned, where Christians are tortured, etc. And then there's white persecution, where more and more it's become unacceptable to hold especially more traditional Christian views. Uh, we saw that, for example, in the U.S. in the last couple of years, with the confirmation process of judges and justices for the Supreme Court, that if they happen to be strong Christians, then they had abuse hurled at them by the Senate uh, Hearings Committee in order to, you know, basically disqualify them for being overly Christian. So it's something that we're seeing in the West that is growing. The ridicule is growing, especially in the in the academy, but in the also in other countries like other uh, continents like Africa and Asia, in particular, those two, um, the level of red persecution, bloody persecution is not lessening. It's not diminishing. It's growing, especially in countries like Nigeria, in countries like Yemen, uh, still in countries like Syria and Iraq. Um, we're seeing this really, it's something that is kind of contagious as well. When it starts in one place, we find that it often picks up in another. So let's just isolate it. Let's just look at what's happening in the West and maybe here in America. How do we get to this state? What brought it about? You could go back several generations. Things were a lot more harmonious and uh, we didn't see this kind of um, attacks on Christianity. You mentioned the Supreme Court and also and it's, it's widespread just in terms of um, subtle discrimination against Christians and in their employment even. Yes, this is this is a fact. And uh, and it's I think you can trace it back really to a more and more radical secularist movement in the U.S. who really don't want to be shackled. They don't want to be held down by any conservative uh, views, especially moral views. And churches like the Catholic Church and evangelicals, uh, these are traditionally kind of the bastions of Christian morality. And they will. It, it doesn't mean they always practice it, but they at least continue to preach it. And it's something that's out there. And there is almost there had to be a bit of a clash of worldviews here where those who saw, you know, real liberalization of sexual morality, of morality regarding marriage, regarding uh, religious freedom, different questions like this, becoming more and more liberalized. And then you have more conservative Christians who push back and say, no, that's not actually the way this country was founded. Those aren't the beliefs that made America a great nation. And it's time we look back at those as well. And so what it really is, is, is two very, very different worldviews. And when the more secular 
uh, progressive worldview has more and more power, especially as we said in, in government and the academy and universities in particular, uh, it's only natural that Christians become ridiculed as kind of benighted, old fashioned, medieval, uh, obscurantist, all these words that they use for people without a more quote unquote enlightened worldview. In your new book, The Coming Christian Persecution, you open uh, in 2020, and you can tell us about this, uh, why you picked these out. A Tunisian crazed guy walked into the Basilica of Notre Dame in France, in, in Nice, France, uh, brandishing a knife with a six inch blade, along with a copy of the Quran, shouting, Allah, Allah. The 21 year old Tunisian stabbed the sacristan and two women to death and was attempting to decapitate them when he was apprehended. And then you go on that same week, pro-abortion activists stormed into Catholic churches across Poland, interrupting Sunday masses and hurling insults at priests and faithful. They were protesting a high court decision to ban eugenic abortions of children with Down syndrome and other disabilities. Meanwhile, on this is the third one, third example. Meanwhile, on October the 18th, that same year in Chile, radical secularists burned to the ground two Christian churches. They're just examples. I'm not sure if they're remote or isolated examples, and there are many more uh, that rise to that terrible scale. So what, what I really tried to do with the book, John, is, is to go back and forth between kind of the big picture, the global picture with statistics to show really how serious and how widespread the problem is, and then to kind of zoom in on individual examples to give people a sense of what this actually looks like on the ground. So these are not, unfortunately, isolated examples. There are three examples that I basically pulled out of a hat, but I could have pulled dozens more because this is something that is ongoing. It happens week after week, day after day. Um, I've been covering this for many years. I, I write for Breitbart News, and it's one of my beats is to cover Christian persecution. And I remember a very emblematic example in, in March of 2019, where you what you will recall, and I think all your listeners will recall, that there was a crazed man in Christchurch, New Zealand, who went into two mosques and killed 51 Muslims. And it was horrific. It was terrible. It was on front page of every newspaper. It was it led off all the news stories on the evening news and it was covered for a couple of weeks. But we never heard was in that same week, there were 120 Christians killed in just in Nigeria in an ongoing killing spree by Muslims, especially in the center region, the Fulani uh, Muslim raiders. Uh, and there, it, it didn't make the news. It didn't make CNN. It didn't make any of the three uh, major networks, and it didn't make any of the major papers, not even in the back pages. Um, and while I agree that this was a huge deal, what happened in New Zealand, it deserved all the attention it got. But what's with taking Christian persecution for granted? And this is something that just goes on and on and on. And it seems like, especially the mainstream media, they just have no time for it. Either that it's considered too commonplace, it happens all the time, it's not news, or they don't want people to understand how serious and widespread the problem is. And then, of course, in 2019, we had the burning of uh, the cathedral in Notre Dame in Paris. Um, we're all saddened by that, and it happened during the season of Lent. 
and a lot of conspiracy theories flying around and but we don't really know there was no official reporting on what occurred was it i mean some people suspect it was malicious another said well gosh you know it was one of those unfortunate accidents well you know that would be more believable and it is possible i, I do not have any proof that that was set by any individual person or group and and i don't think anyone does right now and that's a shame that we don't know what i do know is that in the weeks and months leading up to that, because I was following this very closely, there were a number of churches torched in France, many of them tied to uh, radical Muslim extremists. This is this is a fact. And it happened in town after town. That was something that I reported on extensively because it was it was a phenomenon that was ongoing and it was very malicious. And the fact that the burning of Notre Dame in Paris happened in that same time period certainly led, I think, a lot of us to, to suspect, we cannot know, but to suspect that there was some foul play involved in that as well. I interviewed um, C.J. Dial of the Catholic Action League in Massachusetts about a year or so ago, and he documented the number of um, church burnings, Catholic church burnings uh, throughout the United States. It happened at that period on an ongoing basis, and it possibly still is and amazing statistics i mean as i recall it ran into the hundreds just inexplicable why we haven't gotten to the bottom of this or what would be driving these crazy individuals that are doing it yeah that was a particularly ugly period it is still going on but that that particular spate i think you're talking about the summer in particular of 2020 2020 was a was a horrific year for yeah. church burnings in the united states some were associated with um, it, remember, it was the time of a lot of uprising. They were pulling down statues. They were pulling down anybody that represented ties with the past, uh, with any problems associated with it. One was Father Junipero Serra, Saint Junipero Serra from California. His uh, his statues were torn down because it was said that he was bad for the native population, which I personally disagree with. And I could give lots of facts why that is not true. But that was that was one of the ideas that was kind of being floated. And some of the attacks actually happened up and down California in churches associated with St. Junipero Serra. But there were others up and down the East Coast as well. They happened really kind of all over the place. And uh, and they happened, as you mentioned, with, with impunity. There were very few of these criminals who were brought to justice. It was the summer of Black Lives Matter and this idea of this, quote unquote, peaceful protest. And a lot of these pe peaceful protests were not. Uh, and they, they represented a, a lashing out at traditional institutions, one of which in that case was the Catholic Church. And there was very little interest at that time in really uh, bringing justice to bear because we were seeing these things happening on a secular scale, like out in Chaz, what we saw um, in, in a, really across the nation, what we saw in Minnesota and other places with these, these rebellions happening. And some of that was taken out against the Catholic Church. The um, repeal elimination of Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs decision and Roe v. Wade, nobody needs to be reminded, but it federalized abortion throughout the United States. And now it goes back to the state level for the states to decide. Um, that also brought out the worst elements. And there was a whole Catholic backlash against um, those who didn't agree with the court decision, as if to point the blame, quote unquote, at the Catholic Church for a decision that was long needed. And of course, there's, um, there are other issues now we have to deal with on the on the state level. But that was a particularly disturbing time. And it, it sort of continues on that uh, these 
pro-choice elements out there keep pointing the finger at the Catholic Church, the institutional church, and at pro-lifers that they're doing something terribly sinister here. Well, this is, this is so true. And it happened in those days in particular, but it's still happening now, that secular media and some of these very strong pro-abortion groups kept pointing to the Supreme Court and noting how many Catholics are on the Supreme Court, which they never had a problem with when they were liberal Catholics. When it was Anthony Kennedy, nobody cared that he was Catholic. You know, th this is something that only matters if you have Catholics that actually take their faith seriously. And the other thing, though, is to say that these justices, to kind of it, are they trying to impose their confessional beliefs on the nation when, as you well know, all they were doing is trying to correct a very, very bad ruling, a very bad piece of jurisprudence from the 1970s, which even liberal uh, legal scholars agree was done terribly. It, it should have been it should have been repealed decades ago. Uh, so this was not a question of imposing some confessional belief. This is not justices trying to make you know people go to mass on Sunday. This was a question of basic uh, justice and also basic understanding of the legal system that there is no such right to abortion enshrined in the U.S. Constitution, which is what the Supreme Court is supposed to adjudicate on. That that is their their sole mission as Supreme Court, and they went way beyond and started, as we know, legislating from the bench. My guest is Dr. Thomas Williams. He's the Brebard Rome Bureau Chief who has penned a hard-hitting and timely new book that masterfully reveals the state of affairs in countries that systematically persecute Christians. It's called The Coming Christian Persecution. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. It seems that um, this whole persecution anti-catholic sentiment if you will in the west and here in america um is is indeed just going to get worse because we have all these new ideologies filtering in to our education system to academia um to the world of media and those who take a stand against that especially leaders and professional people, ordinary workers are going to feel that backlash. How, how do you see that playing out ultimately? I know some states have kind of moved in one direction and other states have moved in another. So there's quite a lot of polarization on these topics. Well, I, I think that, that the West has generally, especially the more progressive elements in the West, but they seem to have the loudest voices, have taken kind of a double-edged approach to this. One is denial that this even exists denial that there is any sort of of Christian persecution going on so much so this this struck me as almost you know almost comical if you look on Wikipedia if you go in there's an actual entry an entire page dedicated to the to the title Christian persecution complex and it talks about how Christians often think they're persecuted when wink wink we know that they're really not and I remember when I first read that particular entry I thought to myself can you imagine if they put if Wikipedia had a paid page Jewish persecution complex or Muslim persecution complex, people would be up in arms, right? And this so there's a denial that it exists and also kind of an undercurrent of, of, well, if you are treated badly, you've brought it on yourselves. This is something that you had coming for a long time. Karma is tough. This is what it is. And you're getting back for being a dominant force in the United States, a dominant force in the West elsewhere, and you're just getting what's coming. And, and I feel, I hear that sometimes out of people's mouths. They try to, they don't put it quite that bluntly, but you get the real sense that, oh, well, you had that coming anyway. 
Um, so I, I don't see this getting any better. In fact, I think the West that used to actually have, you know, a lot of pushback, we really recognized our Christian roots. Now that's termed Christian nationalism is something, you know, scary, something sinister. Yeah. Yeah. When our history is Christian, it, it, it just is. When you look at the roots, you know, even in things like the Declaration of Independence, we declare these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. These are Christian principles. That doesn't come in the Republic of Iran. You don't find that in Afghanistan's constitution. You don't find that in Pakistan. This is These are Christian concepts, and they've been adopted, embraced by the West. And we sometimes forget that these are not born of the Enlightenment. These are born of the Christian uh, humus that is that is actually the, the, the seedbed of all of Christian West. One of your key arguments um, uh, for why it's going to get worse in, in at least in the West, is just the increasing secularization, um, relativism, this anything goes kind of mentality among a growing um, section of our populations. Um, we, although we've had these strong Christian roots, you go through any city or town in Europe, there's churches everywhere that had to come from somewhere that came. That's who we are. But um, it's been increasingly rejected by an aggressive secularism and so all of this stuff can be ha happening out there it's the, the the attacks on christianity and the catholic church and people will probably a lot of people re will refuse either to admit it or acknowledge it or or could care less well it seems to me john that the strategy right now and it has been especially since 2015 with the obergefell versus hodges decision from the supreme court is to kind of tar Christians, serious Christians, more conservative or orthodox Christians, with the brush of being bigots. And they do it especially in two areas. One is the area of, of sexuality and marriage, and particularly the area of homosexuality and gay marriage. And secondly, being the life issues, and particularly abortion. Those are kind of the two uh, points where Christians are held up and the Catholic Church is held up in a particular way as being bigoted and as being uh, you know, hateful. Uh, because it doesn't embrace uh, the trends of modernity that are going in a more liberalized fashion. And so it, it is an attempt to make serious Christians whose creed is based on love into haters and, and to say, well, the only reason you would ever say that a marriage is between a man and a woman is because you hate gays. That can, that's the only possible way that you would say that is if you hate gays. And if you are pro-life, it's only because you don't believe that women should be free. You want to go back to a world where women are told they have to be barefoot and pregnant in, in the kitchen, and you really don't believe that women are equal to men, and so that's why you oppose abortion. And it's very hard. These are very clever, and, and they're, they're soundbite friendly. These are arguments that are easily said. Um, and then to actually mount a counter argument, which obviously there's a very strong one, but it takes a little bit more time. You have to build it up with some premises and explain really why we think what we think. But I'll tell you, uh, the, this the generation of the of the quick soundbite in the Twitter feed. It's it goes against us because our our beliefs depend on a little bit more grounding than just you know that four line answer. Your book's great, by the way. And um, I feel you could also have titled it "The Coming Collapse of Western Civilization." Do Do you think that the West, Europe? is facing collapse at some point and kind of any timeline? It, it certainly feels that way. I am um, 
because I'm a Christian, I am hopeful because I am just of this sort of personality. I'm also optimistic. Hopeful and optimistic are not the same things, but I'm actually both. Mm. And I tend toward optimism because I really want things to get better so desperately that I always hope that people will come to their senses and that more serious Christians, I, I, I believe that if we really insisted more on the importance, for example, of religious freedom, I, I do see signs of hope there that there is a an awareness growing that we need to insist more uh, about this. And I, and I try to do my part in also letting people know how serious the problem is, hoping that there will be a reaction to that as well. We have to show how bad things are getting so that people will really rise up and do something about it. Um, will that happen or not? I don't know. Things are really getting worse. They get worse by the day. And uh, and I don't I don't know if there's going to be a turnaround or not. It could happen, as happened with the Roman Empire, as happened with empires in the past, that things just collapse. It could yeah. be the end. China could be the next major superpower, and the West could slowly could slowly fade a little bit into obscurity because we've lost so many of the important virtues and principles that held us together and gave us the strength and made the West kind of the the leading force in the world through Christendom. Uh, that is dying. Um, so yes. I don't really know an answer to your question. I certainly don't have a timeline. It feels like there's an accelerated decline. That's the way it feels. I live, uh, as you know, in, in Italy, but I grew up in the United States and I go back and forth and this and I travel a lot around Europe. And you do get a real feel that that there there is a sharp decline in this kind of creeping secularism. Even people who are once serious Christians, Christians are embracing it and saying, well, this is the way the world is now. We can no longer hold the beliefs that we grew up with. That's that's very interesting response. I mean, I, I feel there could be an economic and financial collapse somehow tied at the hip. But we've been through a lot in our history, in our recent history. We went through two world wars and there were periods of great harmony and um I guess society was a lot more ordered not so long ago, and that may be restored. We we can never tell, but hope is a is a wonderful thing. Can we um just go a, a little bit of history here, and then come back to the book again? I mean, there was Christian persecution in the Roman Empire, right? Um, what were the roots of that? Was it because Christians were sort of a, a people apart, and they threatened? the the roman leadership and they didn't fall in line um did the roman emperors look at many of these christian groups as some kind of an extreme jewish sect just walk us through that yes um well you you've you've touched on several points there that are very very important uh in the roman empire it was illegal to hold uh a belief of a foreign religion that did not at the same time accept the religion of the state. This is something that, although there were there was some diversity over the, the almost 300 years of persecution, sometimes it was harsher, sometimes it was gentler. There were different things emphasized and even in the way to treat uh, to treat Christians. And it was done even by province, it was treated differently. If you had someone who's particularly zealous in hunting down Christians, then you'd get a period of, of very, very serious persecution. You could have a decade or two of relative a relative peace. Um, but what really the problem was that the Christians grew ridiculously quickly. Um, the Jews, for example, did not proselytize. They were not trying to make converts, basically. And so the Jews, even though they were technically in the same situation, they would have been considered illegal because they did not recognize any of the Roman gods. Uh, but they didn't make a big stink about it. They kept to themselves 
Whereas the Christians were in your face. The Christians were trying to convert you. We had, and, and Christian converts came from every different economic and social level. So you had Christian slaves, but you also had Christian nobles. You had people in the court. And this began, began to make Rome very, very nervous. Um, and I think that there were, there were personal issues as well, particularly at the beginning of the harshest persecution under Nero uh, in the late 50s when Peter was executed, Paul was executed. You had a situation, too, of his unpopularity. We had the great fire of Rome. We, he needed a scapegoat for that. And the, con, the Christians very conveniently provided him with a scapegoat. And the killing of some of these Christians, the execution of them was also a way to kind of appease the wrath of those who were really concerned with the situation of Rome because that burned a big chunk of the of the Roman geography. Um, so there were, you know, situations like that as well. There were people even during those 300 years that were particularly angry about something that happened within their own family. There were personal reasons, I'm saying, as well as those reasons of state. Um, and there was a real, it was constant. It's kind of, it was interesting for me to look at those centuries again, look at the Christian martyrs that we venerate. And those saints, they go from place to place and decade to decade and it was just an ongoing witness of people who are willing to shed their blood for Christ. And it, it, it's actually very heartening to me mm. to see so many who went to their deaths gladly, happily, uh, really with their hearts set in Christ and in, and in heaven and willing to accept whatever fate uh, was going to you know, befall them because of those those beliefs. And we had, the, you know, the northern African martyrs like uh St. Felicity and St. Perpetua, and we had St. Cyprian in, in, in northern, uh, in, in the Carthage region as well. We had them up and down um, the Italian peninsula and into other Roman territories as well. And it went all the way up until 313 with the Edict of Milan. And again, at certain moments was extremely harsh. And we had also efforts to, to you know, kind of discredit the historical record, particularly under the Emperor Diocletian, not only was a severe persecutor himself, he burned a lot of Christian books. He burned a lot of the witnesses of the martyrdoms because he did not want this to be something that Christians later on would look to and be able to say, these are our heroes. And then you had all the <clears throat> early church leaders, they faced persecution and, um, and, and cruel ends at the uh, hands of the Romans, hung on uh, crosses. Absolutely. This was... A particularly brutal time. And I think that also the fact that Christians started using the cross as a symbol. Mm. And again, it, it was a very shocking thing. But there was also a little bit of sentiment that, oh, if you're going to embrace that, then you're going to get more of it. Uh, the mm. sense that if you're going to accept this, this Christ who was crucified, who was executed as your God, then you're going to share in his fate. And that was even said to them. And, and we had, there's so many actually just compelling stories. We had in Asia Minor, um, we, we had those, those great saints, uh, St. Polycarp, who was killed at 84 years of age. And they said, just save yourself, just sacrifice to the emperor. And he said, look, I've served Christ for, for 84 years. Look at my gray hairs. Why am I, he's never done anything to me. He's been my friend and my God. How can I betray him? And, and they ended up, you know, burning him alive, but it was just a beautiful heroic story of an 84-year-old man who could have, simply by burning a little incense before a pagan idol, have saved his skin, and yet said, no, here I am, I, I've been true this far, and God's been true to me, and this is what we're going to do to the end. 
he clearly had deep faith and knew there was an afterlife and he was going uh, to an eternal kingdom. Um, of course, that's the symbol, correct, of the red hat that um, bishops and cardinals wear today, that they will yeah, spill or prepare to shed their... Yeah, it's meant to be blood red. It is meant to be blood red. It is meant to be, if you accept this, if you're willing to put this on, be aware that you're willing to shed your blood for Christ. Um, I'm not sure what percentage take that very seriously today, but that is definitely the symbolism behind it. And that is what they're reminded of even today in the ceremony of investiture when they receive that. Speaking of that, do you think um, our leadership in the church stand up enough for the faith take on the secular establishment and as you said how many of them would take it seriously would shed their blood well i i think john is in every age it's a mixed bag uh if we start with the top if you start with pope francis he certainly speaks a lot about christian persecution he 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 speaks very eloquently about it uh he has been you know, willing to call out uh, the fact of this persecution that goes on. But unfortunately, a few of the hotspots, uh, he's a little bit more cozy with. So let's take the example of China and Hong Kong. Uh, the Pope has been unwilling to speak about the Christian persecution going on in a big way in China and the role of the Chinese Communist Party in that. He did not want to take the side of the pro-democracy uprisings in Hong Kong and their close ties with the local Catholic Church there. And he hasn't even wanted to recognize the persecution of the Uyghur Muslims, if you want to even go outside just to a greater, broader religious persecution, uh, in large part because he is trying to reestablish diplomatic relations with China and doesn't want to offend be Beijing by calling out these very, very serious human rights abuses and abuses of, of, of Christians and other religious groups. Um, and I think that's tragic that he hasn't been willing to do that. He hasn't called out the situation in Venezuela where his own bishop has just been sentenced to 10 years in prison uh, for propagating fake news just because he's always been standing up for the rights of his people and criticizing the government. And the Pope has been unwilling to say anything there. So I think there are unfortunately some very real examples of where Pope Francis has not come forward the way we'd expect a strong leader to. Um, this is not the case of others. Look, we have Cardinal Joseph Zen, uh, the former Bishop of Hong Kong, who's been a very, very staunch defender of the Christians in, in China and willing to call out the Communist Party and, and what they've been doing there. We have very staunch leaders in South America in some of the places. Um, and we have several bishops in the United States and several bishops in Europe who are also, you know, trying to make this more known. But unfortunately, we're not getting the best signals from the very top that this is the party line right now, that we really want to be doing this. Uh, Francis no notoriously has never wanted to talk about Muslim or Islamic persecution. In fact, when he's been called out on it by reporters, he said, well, if you're going to talk about Islamic persecution, then you have to talk about Christians who are persecutors because it, they exist everywhere. There are fundamentalists in one group and another. And, you know, my response internally to that is always, you do not have Christians decapitating people on a regular basis saying, you know, Allah is great. No one says, praise be Jesus Christ and yeah. is cutting people's throats. You know, that, that's no excuse for that kind of abuse. We just don't get that. So, yeah. uh, you know, obviously, Christians throughout the centuries, there's plenty we have to look back on and regret. It, it, it's not a clean and perfect record. But no one takes inspiration from the Christian faith to go out and say, this is for the, the glory of Jesus. I'm going to go and, and blow up innocent people.
it's not a clean and perfect record. We'll, we'll just pick up on that because we had the whole periods of the Crusades and um, there's a lot of confused thinking about that. I'd just like to get your opinion where it seems that Christians went on a rampage and were involved with pretty bloody campaigns. But explain the Crusade to us, put it in context. Well, the crusade, the crusade, first of all, the crusades, there were many crusades. There were a number of them, and they are a very mixed bag. There were some that were worse than others. There were some that were very, very good. I mean, a lot of these orders that were founded around the time of the crusades were to protect pr- pilgrims who simply wanted to go to the Holy Land. They wanted to go visit Galilee. They wanted to go visit Jerusalem. They wanted to go to the places of the Holy Sepulchre and the places where Jesus walked. And they were threatened both by brigands along the way but also by the Muslims who were holding these places that had taken them away from their original Christian uh, proprietors. So, I mean, there was a a sense also of this has been stolen from us, and we are in the first place going to protect Christians who want to go there on a holy pilgrimage, but we're also going to try to get back what is ours for the sake of the faithful. And, you know, that's probably not the way we would do it today, but I think it's very understandable, understandable looking historically the Muslims and the Christians went back and forth, taking lands from each other. And but the Holy Land was Christian long long before uh, Islam was even a religion. Sometimes we think of Islam as an ancient religion, kind of coexistent with with Christianity or even predating Christianity. But it's not. It's sixth century. This is many centuries after Christianity has already been, you know, fertile and growing throughout the world. So this is something. This they had no sort of proprietary claim to those lands. They just wanted them. And they consider them to be holy because Muhammad considered them holy and they wanted them for themselves. But that you do understand, I think, why Christians, especially with the mindset of that time and that age, would want to get back those lands. Um, I think it was on the fifth crusade that was documented in an historical record that I read, um, mentioned St. Francis of Assisi. He was on that crusade, but he was doing it in a, in a peace-loving way. He was apparently trying to convert one of the uh, Muslim leaders and they get on great apparently. Yes, he met with the Sultan and he tried to convince him uh, to become a Christian. And again, these crusades were not all acts of war. They were, again, they were soldiers generally accompanying people because in those days you also just didn't, you know, put on your sandals and just start walking across the fields. Uh, they were very dangerous times and the soldiers were there with with the role of protecting uh pilgrims and making sure that they got there safe and sound and keeping them safe while they were there. So there were often these groups were mixed. Some were soldiers and some were lay people. And there were often priests and religious that went along with them as well. You mentioned the case of St. Francis, who could be more an iconic uh, symbol of peace than Francis. And should we make a fine distinction between uh, radical Islam and traditional or regular Islam or peace-loving Islam in the West Absolutely. Um, I have known many, many fine Muslims who are very kind, generous. Uh, They also are very pious. They set a real example for us. Uh, The way that they are devoted to their prayers, it it kind of puts us to shame sometimes. Their willingness to do what they have to do to be faithful uh, to their religion. Uh, But I think that there is, the problem is also the Quran is a bit of a mixed book in the way it's been interpreted by different groups and also the history going back to Muhammad himself you know, it, it, you can find what you're looking for. And so I think that that the Muslim extremists do 
really believe that they are on a quest that that God approves of. Even those who do things like suicide bombings really believe that this is going to end in their eternal reward, and they're going to have 70 virgins and all the different things that that uh, Islam promises to, to the, its faithful members. And so I think that, unfortunately, the roots are there, and they do recurringly appear. There hasn't been any sort of a real kind of cleansing of that the way that there seems to have been a little bit more with Christianity. Uh, there was no, you know, coming to grips with that and kind of publicly refuting that those elements of the faith that are problematic. Um, so I, I think that that will continue to be a problem. And, you know, I would really like it, and I do see it from time to time, but not enough, that as you say, the peace-loving and, and good Muslims, that they also stand up by our side and say, this is not the way we are. Uh, to, to publicly also condemn those acts would be very, very helpful in showing that that is not the true Islam, in showing that that is not the, the way the way Islam has to be. So I, I assume you continue to worry about the presence of radical Islam in the West and in America? Oh, very much so. I, I think radical Islam, I mean, ISIS is momentarily latent. And, and ISIS was a very showy, very loud uh, very vulgar, if you will, will, sort of Muslim extremism. But there's also a lot of Muslim extremism th that is still in the Hezbollah, in, in Lebanon, in Iran, that we see a little bit less. It's a little bit more under the surface, and it's more a Shiite version rather than the Sunni version that we had with, with ISIS. But this is still very, very much alive. And this is something that actually dictates a lot of the anti-Christian persecution in countries like Lebanon. But also in the West, this is something that you know, it, it's kind of like a powder keg. It can go up at any moment. And there are those. It got all tied in also, unfortunately, with this Black Lives Matter and the other. There was a lot of a lot of hatred generated there. And a lot of, unfortunately, Muslims, you know, found that as as kind of a, a kind of a, some kind of brotherhood with those groups and made it a racial thing. As we know, also, there's a blacks have predominantly uh, there's. Muslims in the United States are predominantly black. Um, so it's something that also has a racial component, which is very, very unfortunate. Uh, Dr. Williams, uh, just tell us a little bit more about yourself. I know you're based um, mostly in Rome and um, you're a Bribert bureau chief. You're an academic, a writer. Just give us a little bit more background here. I write. Yeah, I, I teach um, at St. John's University, St. John's out of Queens, New York. They have a, a Rome campus and I teach courses on, on theological ethics and uh, and on the economy, also in economic ethics here. Um, and I've been uh, Rome's bureau chief since 2014 and uh, do a lot of writing on the situation in Rome, the situation with the Vatican. I write a lot about Christian persecution throughout the world um, and on in really any uh, issues that touch on religious faith. It's kind of my my domain here. And uh, and it's been a, a very good fit. And I think that, um, again, I, I do enjoy writing very much. This is this new book is my 18th book. So I hope to wow. you know, keep, keep them coming, as they say. That's a good record. It's called The Coming Christian Persecution, Why Things Are Getting Worse and How to Prepare for What Is to Come. Um, published by Crisis Publications, I guess, go on Amazon. Do you want to give any of that information, websites where people can order? Sure, Amazon has it, of course. Um, it's published by Sophia Institute Press. And if you if you go there, it actually, uh, uh, you get a better price and, and um, 
it's better for my publisher, so that's always good. <laughs> um, but otherwise, yeah, anywhere you want to find it, it's it's there. Great. Um, Dr. Thomas Williams, thank you. It's a pleasure, John. Thanks for, so much for having me on your show. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.